Are you an accredited investor and looking to deploy capital into one of the strongest asset classes on the planet? If you said yes, I want to invite you to join DJ for a free webinar this week that will show you some of the opportunities that our company is focusing on. You'll find that link in today's show notes. Hey guys, I wanted to share something with you. Rod Cleef's invited me and some other members of our multifamily mastermind group to join him in Chicago for a three-day event for apartment investors who are looking to get that slight edge to skyrocket their success. I'm about to share a link with you. It's also in the show notes because I truly want to see you join us in Chicago. It's rodcleef.com slash Adam Adams. The event is super affordable, but using that link will allow you to save an additional 20 to 30% off your ticket. I'd love to see you put yourself in the top 1% of successful multifamily syndicators by taking action right now while the prices are still low. Go to rodcleef.com slash Adam Adams. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams, and we have Jeremy Roll back in the house. Welcome, Jeremy. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me again. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. We like having you and you were on episode 43. So if the, this is episode 77, but listeners, if you go back to 43, you'll hear Jeremy Roll and uh, he's got some excellent information on that first episode. So he's back today, today and we are talking about the 10 steps to reviewing a passive income opportunity. So if you're going to be a passive investor, you're going to want to know these exact same 10 steps. So let's dive right in since they can listen to 43. We'll get right into uh, number one. It's determining whether the type of opportunity you're reviewing, uh, whether it's development, value add, stabilized is the right fit for you. So let's go through step one. Tell us about that. Yeah, I would say this is the most basic step and everyone's different. Um, I was actually having a conversation with someone literally just about this earlier today. Um, you know, everyone invests differently. Everyone has a different risk profile. And frankly, like, you know, sometimes it even makes sense to shift how you're investing depending on where we are in the cycle. So some people want to get the maximum return and they're willing to take the maximum risk and they'll look at development deals solely because they want to hit certain return criteria, certain minimum ROIs. Some people like me are literally on the opposite side of the spectrum where I'm looking for predictable, low risk cash flow. And literally my goal is to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow like full time. I, I got out of the corporate from the cash flow 11 years ago. So every dollar that I invest, I'm looking to get predictable cash flow. And that means I might invest in something that's 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized, kind of, and just more predictable. And then there's stuff in between where there's some cash flow with some value add or there's some upside potential. So everyone's going to have a different profile. Frankly, there's nothing, there's no right or wrong way to go about this. It's actually the best fit for your needs. And some people actually spread um, their type of investing across all three, right? Um, I'm very particular in that I focus on one type of investing. It's what I'm most comfortable with. I'm a low risk guy, but there is no doubt that step number one is what type of opportunity best suits you. What are you looking for? Because you can actually filter out a lot of opportunities. If they're not the right fit for you, you know exactly what you're looking for right away. Awesome. Thank you. And the next one is to assess the experience level of the managers, of the management team, the GP. Yeah. So it's interesting. You've noticed probably that step number two isn't review the opportunity or do you like this asset class or how the returns, right? That's kind of, it almost seems logical that that would be step two, right? But the reason why I'm focused on the managers is because in my opinion, anyway, it's actually more important who you're investing in and making a bet on as a passive investor than the opportunity itself. 
And the, the example I like to use just to make this obvious is like, I live in Los Angeles and you know, Rodeo Drive, very famous street in Beverly Hills, very expensive real estate, some of the most expensive in the world, literally. And I like to use the example, like you can invest in the best building and the best location on Rodeo Drive, but if you had a bad manager and a bad operator and they basically ran it to the ground, then what's going to happen? You're going to get foreclosed. We're going to get the keys back to the bank and you're going to have nothing, even though it was the best opportunity in the best location. So what I've learned over my 16 years of passive investing is that I'm always making a bet on somebody else. And that's the number one consideration. The number two consideration is the actual asset itself. So, you know, being able to practice and get, uh, get more experience into filtering out an operator, both in background checks, um, in determining their experience, and in getting comfortable with the gut check at the end of the day, who are you making a bet on? To me, that is absolutely imperative and more important even than the opportunity itself. That's why it's step two. Let's go in number two, just a tiny bit more. Um, how do you do the background checks? Sure. So, you know, background checks can be tricky. I have subscribed to a service called TLO, like Tom okay. Larry organization. It's actually owned by TransUnion. And actually, I actually, we're family friends with a police lieutenant. And literally, it's the exact same software that the police use in their first step doing a background check on someone that they're looking at, which is pretty amazing, the level of detail. Another one that's really good is um, Accurant, A-C-C-U-R-I-N-T, like Tom. Um, that's by LexisNexis. So to me, as far as I know, those are probably the top two. They're not cheap. They're hard to subscribe to. You can't actually get a subscription to TLO unless you have a real company with a real business address and they actually come and do a background check on you. They actually inspect your office. You have to give a lock, have a lock on a cabinet, a lock on the door that has a cabinet in it. It's, it's very specific. Um, but that's, those are the best services around as far as I know. Then there's secondary services that online that people use. I'm not familiar with them, honestly, but they're out there. And they actually pull, they probably pull data from these services and kind of filter them and pass them along. If, if someone out there isn't really comfortable doing that randomly and doesn't have access to TLO Accurate, what I'd honestly recommend, which I did when I started out, is hire a private investigator. Now, what's going to happen is that a private investigator is going to be licensed and actually is going to be signed up under a TLO or an Accurate. They're going to run reports on your behalf. They're going to charge you more than the report costs to run for their time, um, but you're going to get access to a lot of information. And the other thing too is that their their business is about uh, researching people, so they're they're going to be an expert. So if they find something in a report that I may not understand, they may understand better. They may not look look into. They may understand how to look into it better. So they actually do add a lot of value. They're just a little bit expensive. They probably run the last time I checked somewhere between a hundred and four hundred dollars. But when you're looking to invest thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, to me, it's well worth it. And it's a step that I find most passive investors skip. And it's something I strongly, it saved me a number of times. I strongly, strongly recommend it. Let me ask you, uh, my team is eight big. And we also have co-sponsors when we partner up on a deal to get the liquidity, the net worth, and the history. When you look at us, as an opportunity to invest. Are you looking at, at me, seven partners, and then going to the co-sponsors, looking at both of them, the history, and basically looking at 10 different people? It's a great question. So normally, personally, when I invest, I normally try and invest directly with the sponsor. And when I do that, what I do, my philosophy, is that I will do background checks on the managing members of the operating uh, company. So anyone that's listed as a managing member in the operating agreement, typically mm -hmm. it's an LLC, I'll do background check on every single one of them. Um, right. Typically it's not more than two or three people. 
Um, if you're investing into an LLC that's investing into a deal, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And in that case, I do actually run background checks, which on the managing members of both LLCs, no matter how many people it is. That's my just personal way of doing it because they're the ones who actually have the day-to-day -day control. Great. So number three, search for preferred return. Yes. So, um, you know, I keep in mind, whoever's listening to this, you know, this is one person's opinion. I've got 16 years of passive investing experience since 2002, but this is just my own list, right? So you, some of you may not agree with all this. So it's important to ask around and get multiple opinions like anything else. But in my opinion, if there's not a preferred return, I would just move on to the next opportunity. Um, preferred return essentially puts an investor ahead of the manager as far as a profit split um, in terms of the net distributable cash after expenses and after management fees and everything typically, but as far as the profit splits go. And so what it does is it creates the ability for an investor to get a minimum return before the operator shares in the profits. Um, and that actually, if, if it can't be met on a quarterly basis or an annual basis, then it actually accrues in arrears and then has to be paid out before the preferred return. It's like, I always thought they had to catch you up to what's been missed in addition to what accrues going forward. And it's not compounded typically, but it's still, you have to be caught up to what's been missed. And then there's a profit split. So it's a nice alignment of performance with the operator. And so there's two reasons why it's important. One is it's a nice alignment of performance of the operator. And two, it's because from a competitive standpoint, most opportunities that I find have a preferred return. So if you don't find a preferred return, you're, you're almost taking, it's almost like going to a store and you've got an apple in one hand, an apple in the other, one's $1, one's $2. There's not much reason to pay $2 for the Apple if, the, if you can get it for a dollar in most places. Mm. And that's kind of the way that I look at that too. Okay. What happens if you're offered a 8% preferred return? The way that you're looking at this is a preferred return is not a guaranteed return for the, for the listeners. It's not a guaranteed return. It just means if there's 8% that comes in, Jeremy's going to get all 8% and my company will not get anything. But the question that I have is, what if we get 6% and I give you 6? Are you saying that the 2% needs to carry on to next quarter before I get paid? Exactly. And I think you made a very important point, though. I don't want to just skip over it. If, if anybody out there ever sees anything in terms of the word guarantee, that is just something to run from, right? So a preferred return is there's no guarantees. There's, I could tell you 20 ways a deal can go bad. These are what I call 1% risks, right? And so same thing. There's no guarantee. So to your point, in the, in the scenario you just outlaid, if someone gets 6% on an 8% preferred return in a year of distributable cash, then the 2% gap carries over to the next year. And then by default, you've got the 2% to be made up and then the 8% for that year as well. So effect, effectively, the next year, 10% has to be paid to you before there's a profit split. Awesome. And then that kind of brings us into our next part, number four, which is review the profit splits. Yes. So... Typically, if you're looking at an investment structure, you want to look for a preferred return and a profit split. And they, and they both have to be what I would consider to what I would call market rate. In other words, fair or what you would normally be able to get as an investor. And if they're worse than normal, then you may want to move on just because you may be losing out on certain profit or ROI by going into a less preferred structure versus what you commonly, it's, it's the same idea. Like if it's an Apple, a dollar, why are you paying two? Because you can get it for a dollar in most places. So um, the profit splits that I typically see, and again, this is my one opinion, and I'm just giving you a kind of a range of what I've seen over the years. Normally, they go between 80-20, 80% in favor of investors, all the way down to 50-50. Um, this is after the preferred return. And um, 
80-20 is obviously more favorable for investors and 50-50 is less favorable. I personally do not consider anything below 50-50 where the operator is getting more than the investor. And if I see 80-20, it's pretty rare, but I do see it once in a while. And this is for non-institutional deals. Institutional deals are a little bit different when they're larger. Um, long story short is the way that I had to figure out what the preferred return should be is that I feel like it's a function of, uh, sorry, the, the profit split should be. I feel like it's a function of two things. It's a function of experience of the operator and the amount of work involved. So in other words, an opportunity where there's a highly experienced operator with a lot of work involved, let's say a complete rehab or development deal, that might be a 50-50 split because the operator commands more of the profit because of their experience and because of the work. If you've got a brand new operator their first time around and if there's very little work involved, they're buying 100% occupied building and it's just stabilized and not doing much with it, then arguably it could be an 80-20 split because there's less experience and less work. And so I would kind of tweak those into everything in between and determine if you feel like you're getting the, the fair split within that type of uh, range or spectrum. Awesome. All right. How about we go to number five, which is look for conservative assumption in the projections. Yes. AKA pro forma. Very, very important. So um, we talked number two, I think it was about assessing the manager. And one of the ways you can assess who you're making a bet on is whether they're conservative, trying to under promise and over deliver to build long-term relationships with investors, right? For the purpose of having them for a long time and getting you to reinvest or someone who's aggressive who can make, is trying to just make the numbers look better than they probably may be or are to, for the purpose of selling you on a deal, but they know it's not realistic and that basically they're just going to move on to the next investor for the next deal. And so yeah. obviously you're trying to find conservative people. And the way you can judge that is by looking at some of the assumptions and there's some obvious ones we can go through real quick to, to gauge who is, what personality am I dealing with? Who am I making a bet on? These are very important intangible items to be, to be able to really conjure up who you're making a bet on. So for example, um, if somebody assumes, I'm gonna use extreme examples. Say somebody assumes that over a 10 year period, you're gonna have an average rent increase of 5% per year, which is quite high, you know, over 10 years. And then you have an average expense inflation increase of 1%. I'm just using, an, 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 uh, this is actually unrealistic, but it's just to make a point. And so there's a gap of 4% per year they're building into the deal that compounds over time. And the mm -hmm. numbers are gonna look really fantastic, right? That's someone who's being extremely aggressive, very, um, you know, probably just trying to make the numbers look good to an extreme. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, if you've got someone who's using a 2% rent, rent increase assumption per year for 10 years and a 2% inflation increase assumption, so they're equal, there is no gap. And that's someone to, to me who's being conservative, probably being fair, you know, they're saying rent inflation is going to be similar to inflation and everything else in the world. So rent income and inflation and expense inflation are going to be similar or identical. And that seems like a pretty reasonable assumption to make. Now, we, can, we don't have a time right now, but there's a ton of different assumptions you can look at to see if somebody is being aggressive or not. And it's important you really evaluate everything so you really start to get the picture of who you're making a bet on because it does, you really have to paint the full picture before you can assess if you want to make a bet on somebody. Yep. I, I like that. So I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that from an experience that I had as well. My team uh, passed on a deal because it didn't make sense. We couldn't give the projections that we wanted. And then we found a great deal. And then we put our great deal in front of the investors. And then they actually, this is totally random, had the same, had one of the deals that we totally passed on in front of them. And there was a lot of people saying, look at this other one, how much better it is than yours. And I was like, no, I know that property. How could it be better than ours? 
And we look at it and they're showing that in year one, they're going to get a 20% increase in rents, which completely changed everything because we, we said we aren't going to do anything in year one, like for projection, we'll try obviously, but for year one, we, we don't, we're not even there uh, saying that we're going to change it because we want to be conservative. And, uh, and then our deal, it was showing uh, 18 to 20% return per year to the investor, but that was less sexy than this other one. And I was just like ripping my hair out being like, oh, I wish I could tell you how good we really think this is, you know? Uh, <laughs> but and at any rate, it, it does happen. And there's, there's people out there that, that think that they can do the world. And uh, I, I like what you're saying, basically, uh, exactly how you said it. Yeah. And actually, I really appreciate you sharing that example because I actually see this all the time. And if you're not, if you haven't taken time to get educated as an investor to look for these things and you don't know any better and it's not your fault because you don't have the knowledge, then you could easily just move forward with the one that looks better that actually in reality is not going to be as good. And you're basically, I wouldn't say you're being swindled necessarily, but you're not making a bet on the right person in the very best case scenario, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a really great example. It's exactly what I was thinking of when I mentioned all this. Yeah. Well, and I really like your next one, number six. It is to assess the manager's business plan, uh, the manager's overall business strategy for, for that deal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, this is going to depend on the asset class, but um, trying to give you like a, a real, so here's, here's a great example. Uh, in mobile home parks, I, I, invest, I actually invest across all the asset classes, but mobile, just a really quick, easy example. So in mobile home parks, it's kind of well, commonly well known that if you buy a park that let's say has lot rents of 250 but market rents are 400 which is a huge gap you know you don't want to necessarily have the business plan of bringing rents up 150 dollars a month right off the bat because you're going to upset the community it's very challenging for people to move because it's very expensive for them to move their homes and in some cases you, they actually might go to the media and cause all kinds of problems right so what you're going to want to do is have a business plan where you want to do reasonable rent bumps to get to market rates over a few years, say maybe $20 every six months or whatever, whatever seems reasonable, right? So I actually know of a real life scenario where this happened recently. And I, it's, you know, from rents from like 290 to 420, um, all they start, the community started to protest. They got the media involved and literally in that state, they're now changing the laws because of this one operator, this mm -hmm. one deal. I'm not even exaggerating. Okay. Wow. And so, but if you read the business plan and you understood what to look for, you would actually know to stay far away from that strategy because it's just well known to backfire and yeah. it's just not a smart strategy. So, I mean, this is one of so many examples I can give you across all the asset classes, but it's very important to make sure the business plan at least seems sound, seems like it actually makes sense and that you agree with what they're trying to do. Um, you may just even not like what they're wanting to do. Like the idea of increasing everyone's particular rents by 60% on and actually affecting their lives. I mean, you may not want to be involved in, even if it does make business sense. So it's really important to take a look at the business plan and make sure it seems sound. Great. Thank you. Number seven is to assess the location and surrounding area de demographics. Yeah, really important. And um, so there's a couple of, of things I can tell you to just take a look at here. One is um, just on, on a basic high level. It's much better to be investing in an area that's growing population wise, economy wise, and a area that's shrinking. I'd probably know you get the details as to why it's kind of obvious, but it is important to look at the trends, right? 
because you really don't want to be in an area that's declining. You're going to be basically swimming against the tide and you may have trouble with the asset values going forward. You may have a decrease in occupancy rate, et cetera. Um, the economy is really, really key. And uh, one thing I would encourage people to do is try not to get too caught up with what's happened recently and think five or 10 years ahead as far as where um, society is going, the type of jobs that, increase, uh, uh, that are occurring in that market today. Um, I'll give you some very quick examples. You know, with the internet increasing um, in terms of usage for retail, for example, like, you know, it's a great to be in an area that has jobs surrounding the internet because the internet's growing. Whereas, it, uh, this is gonna sound ridiculous, but say you had an area where all the jobs were like JCPenney, Sears, and major retailers, and those are all about to you know, have downsizing or closing in the next five years, that could be a problem. So that's, a, that's obviously not realistic, but it's, it's at least making a point. So you're gonna to wanna to understand the driver of the economy in the area you're in, and really think ahead, and don't get too caught up in areas that just had a lot of growth, because it's not about the past, it's actually about the future and where things are going. So that's an important thing to look at. Huge point. Thank you for thank you for sharing that. So let me ask you one thing. Besides that awesome point of of instead of looking at the past, looking at the future, what is a key metric that you do look for in the past? One percent year over year, two percent year over year. When you say in the past, you're talking about from an economy perspective, or what do you have in mind? Yeah, job growth, uh, population growth. What are some metrics that you would think are important to actually see what has what has the trend been yeah good good point so you know because i invest for predictability to be totally honest with you it's easier for me to get comfortable investing in um, an economy or area where the population has grown kind of steadily but not crazy quickly so i don't want negative growth and i don't like so an area like denver or seattle right now you know it's 2018 that we're having this podcast those are very high growth areas and the challenge is that what, you, know, you can have a boom and then you can have an adjustment, both in property values, right? But also in job growth and then maybe have too many people moving in, things slow down and now there's a problem because there's too much demand and not supply of jobs, for example. So for predictability for me, I kind of tend to stay away from hot areas because they tend to be more volatile for asset prices, but also for, for predictability. So like I'd rather be in kind of a less sexy town in the Midwest. I mean, just as an example, that's had really predictable, slow growth that appears to have that moving forward based on the trends in society. And that's, that's what I would look for as opposed to the major growth. Now everyone's different and everyone's gonna have different way of investing for different reasons, but just the, way, the type of investing that I do, uh, the okay. lower risk side, that makes more sense. Uh, let me ask you just one quick question on that. What is a city that, you can, that comes to mind that here in the middle of 2018, you're really liking the numbers? The one that comes to mind immediately in terms of potential job growth in the future is Dallas. Um, I mean, it, again, I'm not like, you, you asked me for a city, so I gave you one. I invest, actually, I'm, I'm in over 70 different opportunities right now. I've been in over 100 over time. I'm invested in many different states. Yep. Um, that, that particular city, what I like about that, and Texas in general, is there's, been, there's a lot of population migrating towards Texas for two reasons. One is because of job growth and it's business friendly, but also because people tend to retire in the southern states right? So Florida is actually, for example, projected to be the number one population influx in the next 10 years. Texas, I believe, number two. So people are retiring, moving to these areas. So now people retiring demand certain types of things and not others. So you got to think carefully about what type of asset class you're investing in. But the fact that there's a trend towards population growth is clearly a good thing in general, right? But Dallas, I like because a lot of business have been relocating there. 
there's a lot, uh, but and it has had a lot of like growth as far as volatility, but not nearly to the extent in terms of increases like a Seattle or a Denver. So that's interesting. Um, I, you could you could argue that one's almost grown a little too quickly for my liking recently, but still I see a really good future there. Just just because you asked me to name one. So. Appreciate that. Number eight is get to know who you're making a bet on. Speak with the managers. My question on this is: is that not the exact same? as before when we were talking about um, who's going to be managing the team. So what's different from eight and two? Yeah, I, I will definitely explain the difference. So um, I find that a lot of people tend to read a bio, uh, may review the entire business plan and do a lot of important steps, but they may fall short from having a real detailed conversation with the managers. Um, and what I mean by that is that, for example, one of the strategies I use to assess somebody is to actually ask them a ton of questions. And in some cases, what their answer is, the actual content of the answer is yep. less important than how they're answering. So in other words, if I say to them, can you explain to me why there's a 2% rent and growth increase and a 2% inflation increase? It's, I'm not necessarily, you know, to me, it's not like, well, we ran, I mean, it's important to hear like we ran comps and this is how we substantiated it. But if they literally just say to me, we ran comps and we believe there's going to be a 4% increase, but we did 2% to be conservative to make sure our projections were conservative. The, the fact that they were conservative tells me a lot more than whether it was 4%, 2%, 1%, and me running all the times of data as to whether it should be 2% or 2.5%, right? So, so these types of reading between the lines are very important. I feel a lot of people don't use that strategy to kind of, when I talk about painting the whole picture, it's not just about reading the business plan. It's about asking questions and really trying to read between the lines as to who you're making a bet on. So I added that step in because you can get a sense for the manager. You can read about a bio, see what they've done, look at their track record. To me, that's not enough. It's, and in yeah. fact, I would even argue that I try to meet everybody. I don't think I invest with anybody before I met them in person at least once, uh, whether it's on-site at a property or something. Because to me, again, it paints part of a picture and you, you end up being able to get a proper gut check if you've met them in person as well. I realize that's not really feasible for most people, yep. but that's why I put that step in there. Perfect. That makes, that makes a lot of sense the way you say it. One way is more to, to make sure that the management team, uh, if, to qualify them in the first place, that they have credibility, that they can do what they say that they're going to do, and that they're not a convict. And number eight is once you know that and you've done some of these other things, now it's time to really get that real gut check and really talk to them and understand if it's somebody that you get along with, if they're responding and, and you have a little bit of, like you said before, they're, they're explaining things very conservatively. They're not lying and they're not, um, what's the other thing? It's just exaggerating. They're, 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 they're real with you and you feel comfortable with them. It's, a, it's another step with them that you don't really need to get into unless some of these other things are working out. Is that right? Yeah, that's perfect. And if okay. you think about it, comfort level comes from a lot of intangibles. And that's where that gut checks comes into play. So it all kind of comes together, but you've got to take that extra step. Perfect. So. Uh, number nine is to perform background checks on the managers. And I think I actually may have written that down earlier as well, is the background checks. Yeah, we, I think, we, you know, we probably, I'm sorry, I should have maybe left that out of my answer for number two, but I brought it up because it's really important. I didn't remember that it was actually on the list. I, I wrote this list a while ago, but okay. yeah, that, but, but that, that I really consider that, I, I actually, broke that out into its own step because there's very few people that do it. And I think it's an absolute imperative step. So we talked about it already, I know, but I just consider it critical and I wish more people would do it. 
Perfect. Uh, one thing that I'm noticing, we're just on step nine and three out of the nine um, are all about that, the, specific, the, the management team. So I think uh, other people should take note of that as well. Uh, already, at least 30% of your, the things that you're doing for uh, assessing a passive opportunity is assessing the management team. I like yeah. that. Good Number point. 10, review all of the legal documents. That's the fun uh, part, right? Yes, and that's why I stress this again because I am, you know, I've not done my own poll, but let me tell you, I've talked to literally uh, thousands of investors over 16 years, not even hundreds. And, um, you know, I happen to, I'm very detailed. So for me to sit down and read a legal document, let me tell you, I don't enjoy it, but I've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to be able to filter it over time and what to look for and what I can just kind of like, there's certain paragraphs I can move on on but I read most of them very carefully. And the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that your operating agreement literally equals the rules, the rules of the game. So if the manager, if you want to get rid of the manager because they're, they're not being, um, they're, they're doing weird things or not good things, there's going to be a vote. And you've got to understand, is that a unanimous vote? Is that a 50% plus one? And if it's unanimous, do you want to get involved in that? Does that make sense? Because what happens if just one investor out of 50 doesn't agree, right? If you want to sell a property, is it be 50% unanimous? There are certain things that actually can affect you a lot more than you would think. And so it's really important to read all the rules because you want to understand the rules of the game. Once you've signed off on that, you cannot change any of the rules yourself. Um, yeah. It's got to be a vote to change the rules, you know, majority. So you're going to be locked into those rules and you can't change them. It's very important to understand the rules of the game before you decide if you want to play it. And let me tell you, I have seen really weird things. I'm going to give you one quick example of stuff I've seen that, I, that just literally shocked me. And I can't imagine that anybody who invested in this one opportunity that I'm going to tell you about actually read the rules. Literally, I think if they understood them, nobody would have invested. So yeah. I remember reading one where there was a cash call provision that, and I, you know, I may have the timing wrong, but I'm going to give you an idea because it was a long time ago. There was one where cash call, so everything I invest in has a, what I would call optional cash call, meaning that they need more uh, cash because something's not going as planned that they'll, they may ask you for money, but you're never forced to put it in. So what happened in this one that I saw was that there was a cash call provision that basically forced people to put it in or they were gonna get diluted, which sometimes is an option if you don't put it in. But what's crazy is that, let's say that you own 10% of the opportunity and that you could have been diluted by 5% if they needed 50% more capital for easy numbers. What this cash call provision did is said, not only do you have to provide the money very quickly, I believe it was within five business days or maybe even been two, it was very onerous. Mm. But if you don't provide us with a cash call of even a dollar in five business days, say, we actually dilute you by 50% automatically right away. So to me, that's nuts because why should they be able to do that? And by the way, if you think about it, if you're getting diluted all that money, who's actually benefiting from your equity? It's probably the managers. I don't remember how it was written, right? Yeah. It was almost like purposely they're going to do it to try to get some people squeezed down. It was horrible. It was yeah. almost unbelievable. And I literally said to myself, I feel bad for any investor in this deal because there's no way somebody would sign off on this if they actually read it or understood it. Man, or, Jeremy, have you followed that deal? Have you been following no, it? No, no. I just look at too many deals. So to oh, me, it geez. just on to the next, on to the next. Yeah. I'm really curious what's going on with that right now. Yeah, it's um, all I can say is that, you know, if in retrospect, you find that you got into a deal and then there's a crazy rule and there, you know, you agreed to this. It's like signing yep. a contract. Yep. Yep. So it, you can say, oh my God, this person's got horrible ethics or whatever it is, but it's not illegal because they laid out the rules, you signed on it. And if you didn't read it, 
you didn't read it. So yeah. you may have no, literally no recourse at all. Um, so be very careful with it. And as boring as it is, take the time. You're, this is this what I, an investment is literally like the biggest money you're spend on something, except for potentially um, a home and maybe a car, depending on how much money you spend on a car. And I like to tell people like, you know, when you're buying a car and you have a loan, you're probably going to read some of the terms, but you'll understand it at least. So understand interest rate, when it's due, how it works, when to pay it. So I, I find a lot of people spend less time or no time reading this type of an agreement versus buying a car, for example, and yet they could be investing a lot more. So think about it that way. It's really, really critical. Wow. All right. Well, before we cover everything, I want to be, um, I have a couple questions on the legal documents and that is what legal documents are there to be looking for? There's an operating agreement. You, you already mentioned that. What other documents are there for the passive investor? Yeah. So for a typical passive investor is being pulled together with multiple um, other investors. Normally, legally, it's required to have an operating agreement for PPM, which dictates all the rules. And then something called a PPM or private place memorandum, which is um, something that is and I, by the way, I'm not an attorney so, or an investment advisor, so I may not be stating this perfectly, but it's basically a document that is mostly for disclosures of risks and other things that is done due to SEC rules um, so that you can avoid being a registered security or having registered securities. And so they require that you publish all these, um, uh, uh, what's the word, disclosures to investors so they understand better what they're really getting involved and what the risks are. And mm -hmm. so that's the primary purpose of the PPM is more about the risks and disclosing the risks. And so, uh, and then there's a subscription agreement, which an investor would fill out to be able to subscribe or invest into an opportunity. Um, there are times at which an opportunity will not have a private placement memorandum. And that's a little bit grayish. Sometimes people disclose risks in the operating agreement themselves to make it so they don't have two documents. But here's what I would tell kind of, especially if you're starting out, the average passive investor should receive a private placement memorandum with a very few exceptions. So if you don't see one, I would be very concerned either because somebody did want to spend the money on the legal or um, maybe they don't understand they're supposed to do one. Now, not knowing they're supposed to do one is not a good sign. It means they're probably not thorough. They haven't looked into how to organize these types of opportunities. And it's frankly a red flag to move on um, for various other reasons. So it's not like there are, like I actually invest with an operator who has over a billion dollars of apartments who still to this day has an operating agreement with risk disclosed, but no private placement random. And I'm totally comfortable with it because they have good attorneys and this is the way they've cho chosen to go. But for an average investor out there, if you're not looking at a PPM and an operating agreement, I would actually just move on because it could be for very bad reasons if you don't receive one. Great. So would it be those three documents that are important to look for? Yeah, and of course, yes, but I'm gonna add another one. Uh, you're pretty much almost or always gonna receive, and this is all synonymous, an executive summary, offering memorandum, or some type of, uh, you know, overview, Th those three words are typically used in the same and that it's meant to be or business plan, right? All four of those are typically the same idea, where there's some type of summary of what the opportunity is, what the business plan is within it to execute the projected return summarized for you and some of the analysis they've done, whether it's rent comparables, sales comparables and other things. So it's truly like the business plan. It's most commonly called either the offering memorandum or the overview or the executive summary. Um, okay. That's another one. If you don't get one of those, sometimes it's embedded in the PPM, but it's usually yeah. broken up for you separately. Um, yeah. It's easier if it's not in the PPM, so you can review it first. And then if you like the opportunity, you kind of go through the legal review after. 
So that's most commonly broken out, but it will sometimes it's in the PPM itself. If you don't receive any, if you don't see one in the PPM and you don't receive one separately, there's a huge red flag because where is the business plan that we talked about that you have to review, right? So that's really critical too. Yep. So those are all the critical documents I would say that I could think of off the top of my head. Perfect. And the and not all critical documents are created equal. And I have a short story. I was at a lunch with one of our investors on our last deal, the 83 unit. And he was talking about how he was trying to put a couple hundred grand into a deal. And that deal, he gave it to his attorney. So here's another learning experience. Share all this stuff with your attorney, especially if you're new. Uh, so he gave those documents to his attorney. And uh, the quote was, and he, he listens to this podcast, he knows uh, who he is. He goes, uh, he goes, the attorney would not do it. The attorney said, steer far, far away from this. Um, and stuff like, and I'm now paraphrasing, that the guy just kind of took some doc, old documents and like changed a couple things. Okay. And, and he goes, on, as, on a better note, he looked at your guys' PPM and signed off it in a second. Uh, so I was like, okay, okay. But that, that is critical, I believe, for anybody getting involved into this. If you know Jeremy Roll, go and talk to him. He's not an investment advisor, as he said, but he does have experience doing this thing. Uh, also very important, just have an attorney. Get your own uh, securities attorney or real estate attorney to look over these documents and to walk you through it. They go through a ton and ton of information and I would have never guessed that somebody would have put something like that in, Jeremy. And they're so long, 80 pages for the PPM or sometimes even longer. Um, whereas it's just overwhelming and your brain wants to shut off. But if you don't do what Jeremy just said and actually read all the details and find out what would happen if you didn't do a capital call on time, then you could probably lose it. Or what would happen if the manager, if it, so for me in, in my syndications, if I do something wrong, we ha there can be a vote. But what Jeremy's saying is it can either be a 50% vote or it has to be a unanimous, unanimous vote. Obviously, a unanimous vote is very much in my favor. And a 50% vote is more in the investor's favor. So do what you need to do to protect yourself. Is that right? Yes. Two comments to that. I think that's a very good point. Number one is with regards to the documents, for those investors out there, keep in mind that the operator syndicator is actually hiring the attorney. So they're the client. So the, the attorney who put the documents together is not trying to protect the investor necessarily. So most of the time they're trying to get a balance between the two, but just know that they're hired by the syndicator, the operator to really cover them as a number one priority, right? Legally. So sometimes there will be clauses in there you may not agree with because they're trying to protect the operator syndicator, not in favor of the investor. And so that's why you've got to read the rules and make sure you agree with them. You may not agree with them. Number two is that I do agree with having an attorney look them over, but please note that if you, let's say you got a friend who is a litigator for pharmaceutical companies, or you have an attorney friend who does contracts for, you know, merger and acquisition work, I strongly do not recommend taking these to those attorneys because if they're not familiar with these types of PPMs and, or, and they just look them over, some of them may just say, don't do this because you know, of this and this constraint. Whereas that could be completely normal in a 
passive investing. Mm. I've, okay, seen this okay. before, I've seen this before many times. So to your point, you're going to go to a, um, an attorney who's very familiar with these types of structures and have them evaluate, is this a norm? Is anything standing out relative to these types of opportunities? They have to have that expertise. It's really important. Yep. All right. So let's go over the 10. Uh, number one, if you're writing this down and not driving guys, is to determine the type of asset, the type of investment you're investing in. Number two is to assess how experienced the managers are. Number three is to search for a preferred return. Jeremy says it's very important to make sure that there is a preferred return. And then you need to re review the splits. Is it, are, after the preferred return, are they going to give you a whole bunch of the rest or are they going to give you a little bit of the rest? So Jeremy looks at that as well. Number five is to look for conservative assumption in the projections to make sure that that operator is not saying that they will raise and increase the rents by 20% in year one or by the example that Jeremy used. Number six is to assess the manager's business plan overall. So how are they going to do it? What are they going to do? Are they just going to increase lot rents on a mobile home from 200 to 400 immediately and get press to come in and get mad at you? No, it needs to sit well with your heart if you're going to do it. Number seven, assess the location and the surrounding area demographics. Basically looking to make sure that you have a path of progress, that there's good history there, and most importantly, in Jeremy's point, that there's a good future there. Basically talking about uh, internet and stuff like that, which is not going anywhere, but other things like retail that may be going somewhere. Number eight, to go get to know who you're making a bet on. So basically he's saying talk to the managers, get to know the managers, make sure that you get along with them. Number eight is to perform background checks on the managers. We talked about TLO, accurate and private investigators. And number 10, finally, is to review the documents. Again, there's four main documents that you're going to want to look for. The executive summary, operating agreement, operating memorandum, excuse me, or the business plan may be within the PPM. So look at the PPM first. And then there's always an operating agreement that is really, really important to read. And finally, there's a subscription agreement that you're going to need to fill out to make sure that, and this is something when you fill out the subscription agreement and you give it back, they, the attorney files that so that the SE, uh, so that the IRS. Yeah. Subscription agreement is filled out if you actually want to move forward with the opportunity. And what it does is there's a whole bunch of questions on there. There's actually a lot of personal information. So in fact, when you see, for example, they're asking for your social security number on your subscription agreement, which a lot of people are hesitant to provide. The reason for that is because, they have to create a K-1 or a tax form on your behalf and they actually have to put the social security number in there as an example. That's why they ask for that, just in case anyone's curious. But they'll also ask you, if you what type of investing background you have, how much experience you have, you know, are, if you make this one investment, can you lose everything you have or not? And they're trying to protect themselves and assess who you are at the same time. They're going to keep that on their on file in case they need to use that from a legal perspective later on. But the, okay. the main point is from your perspective as an investor is that you're saying, I want to move forward. Here's how much I want to invest. Here's my personal information. Will you accept me? Because uh, just like in a store, you know, we can refuse service to anybody. An operator can refuse to accept investment from anybody. So they'll review your entire criteria and decide if, just to make sure you're the right fit. Awesome. Jeremy Roll, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. And again, go back to 43. 
Jeremy has a whole bunch more information on this subject of passive investing, and we'll bring him back and uh, definitely talk a little bit more about diversification and stuff like that. You also run that group in Southern Colorado, California that I think a lot of people might be interested in as well. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, for the group, um, it's, it's a basically a public real estate networking group for, uh, for non-institutional investors. Uh, it's called Foreign Investors by Investors or FIBI. I co-founded it back in 2007 with one other uh, partner. And the whole premise of the group is that there is no sales pitch. That's why we started it. I was just sick and tired of going to certain sales pitches where they're trying to upsell and you have to sit around through a sales pitch for two, three, four hours before you can network with people. And that's why we called it for investors by investors. So the one thing I can promise everybody out there is if you go to one of our meetings, there will be no sales pitch. If you find a sales pitch, please let me know. We're very careful with it. So we have chapters all throughout Southern California. The easiest way to find us is either on forinvestorsbyinvestors.com or you can go to meetup.com, type in F-I-B-I, um, like Phoebe in the search box, and you'll find the closest meetings to you there. Um, the other piece is that um, I actually don't have a website for, I have an investor group, so I'm not allowed to publicly solicit investors, so I'm very careful with that. So I don't have a website you can visit, but if you want to contact me personally, I would be happy to help anybody I can. I love networking with other investors, just any way I can help. Uh, my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, so plural, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is the best way to reach me. I just want to thank you for having me on again. And I just want to thank you as well. Uh, really, any, people like you who are spending time putting these podcasts together and just helping people to learn and just, you're helping a lot of people. And, I, you know, I'm on the investor side of the table. I just want to thank you personally because you're putting hours and weeks into, you know, all these episodes. And it's really for the benefit of helping others out there. So really appreciate what you do. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for saying that. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you. Wall Street can be a bumpy road. If you're an accredited investor and not seeing the returns your financial planner promised you, I'd like to invite you to a webinar Blue Spruce is hosting that can show you how you can achieve higher returns secured by one of the safest asset classes on the planet. You can sign up quickly and easily for free for this live webinar by following the link in today's show notes. I'm Rod Cleef, and I'm host of the Lifetime Cash Flow through Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm also an apartment investor, and I've owned over 2,000 homes and apartments so far in my career. Now, on August 24th through the 26th, I'm going to be hosting a three-day multifamily boot camp in Chicago. And I've asked Adam Adams to be an expert on a panel there with some other members of our multifamily mastermind group. Now, if you're like me and you realize you learn so much better in full immersion at a live event with no distractions and you actually want to do your next apartment deal within the next 90 days or so, you need to text multifamily to 41411 or go to multifamilybootcamp.com right now. Take massive action because this event's definitely going to sell out. We've got fantastic early bird pricing right now. So don't wait. Go to multifamilybootcamp.com or text the word multifamily to 41411. And Adam and I look forward to seeing you in person in Chicago, August 24th through the 26th.